All right, Hebrews chapter 2, we made it to verse 4 in our last study. We're picking up in verse 5, down to 9. And by the way, this coming Wednesday night, um, we will begin our study in the book of Leviticus. So we kind of swapped the Sunday morning Old Testament survey to Wednesday night. So we had just finished the book of Exodus. And I'll say that going through Exodus, and then now we're going through Hebrews, And then to go through uh, Leviticus on Wednesday night is probably um, one of the best ways to understand the book of Hebrews is with these two books uh, being taught around there. So I really encourage you to come on out. It's not going to be a long study. Uh, We'll have uh, maybe six or seven studies in the book of Leviticus. So it'll be a survey style. But here we are in Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9. And we're going to be talking about the incarnation, suffering, and glory. It would appear from what is written in this chapter that one of the reasons the Jews were struggling in their total devotion to Jesus as the Messiah was because he came in the likeness of man. It was a stumbling block. It was was a difficulty. Especially, again, as we look at our section here, as you compare that to the, the, the wonderful glory that God had created angels with. I mean, angels, we'll talk about some of their, the benefits that they have when um, we well understand them as humans walking through this earth. And so as people began to think about Jesus as a, as a man, he was a God man, but as a man, that humanity, that incarnation, it created a bit of a stumbling block. Possibly they viewed the very human aspects of Jesus' life, the birth, the rejection, and death, as inferior to the existence of angels. And there is some historical proof for this, besides the statements that we're reading right here in the Bible. And that is, you maybe have heard of the Essenes, that community that was down in the Qumran, the Dead Sea area. And they had many, many writings. This is where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from. And some of their thoughts of this sect of the Jews was that they believed in the coming age it would be marked by the dominion of Michael and his angelic subordinates. So this was a thought that was not biblical, but it was something that was out there in their culture and in their day, as that the angels were the ones that were really going to have the dominion and the power. But in this chapter, the writer is going to show us again that Jesus is superior to the angels Through the means of Christ's humanity, he accomplished everything that they were hoping for or they needed to be reminded of or taught maybe for the first time. That was a possibility for them. So we're going to see that the incarnation brings the blessings um, to us and they secure us. So why would you forfeit all of these blessings? So let's begin reading verses 5 through 9 and we'll come back. It says, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place saying, and this would be David in Psalm chapter 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not under him, but now we do not yet see all things under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. 
So this is a, a bit of a challenging passage because it's written there in Psalm 8 and it is speaking about man. But there's a fuller understanding that he's going to bring the, uh, the, the readers of this book and therefore us into from Psalm chapter 8. That the, there's a fuller um, understanding, not just in man being created and being made lower than angels, but even the son. And so this seems to be the problem that they were dealing with. So he's going to correct them using the Old Testament scriptures. So he put him... Uh, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. So here is a statement of man's future glory. It's not the angels that are going to have the world to come under their authority and subjection. Who has that been given to? Well, Psalm chapter 8 tells us that it's, it's mankind. That he has created and given this amazing special privilege of, of having authority and rule and honor. Zane Hodges writes, he says, The epistle looks beyond the temporary humiliation to the objective which God the Father pursued in his son's death. The results of Jesus' death are glory and honor. The same crown which the Lord intended for mankind, Psalm 8, verse 5, by suffering the particular death which he experienced at Calvary, the Son became a channel for the grace of God. So this incarnation, in short, if we just get straight to the end point, the incarnation of Jesus made a little lower than the angels, allowed him to suffer, and in suffering, he was able to restore the glory that was lost to mankind that he forfeited in the garden. And so Jesus is going to rule and he's going to reign, but he's tasted that for us and we also will come alongside. So he's showing, listen, you, you, you're having a problem with the humanity of Jesus, but the humanity of Jesus is completely necessary that we might be able to experience all that God has planned. But let's talk about man for a moment from that original understanding there in Psalm 8. That he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. We need to be reminded of the glory that awaits us because of the incarnation and suffering of Jesus. We can become so earthbound. We can become so um, accustomed to dealing with the difficulties and the challenges and the irritations and the bad news and, and the things that don't turn out the way we want in this life. And we just get earthbound. And we just get... It's like all we think about is this earth or maybe even not even the negative things that I just highlighted, but maybe we get earthbound and just living for something that is yet to come, a, a dream or a hope or a plan that we have. And we become earthbound and we lose sight of this fact that in the world to come, it's not angels, but it's us that are going to be in that place of authority of ruling and reigning. So what really matters? What really matters is the irritant that you're experiencing, you know, with, you know, a person, with something in life at your workplace. Is, is, it, is it really significant when you begin to think about having the world to come underneath your subjection? You know, blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. There is so much glory to come, and we're going to talk about that. Now, some in the church today would teach and say there's no future earthly kingdom to come, um, they would say that that is something that is, um, you know, is happening at this point in time. I don't want to get off into this a lot, but I believe the, the writer of Hebrews is obviously not of that persuasion. 
He's, he's speaking of the world to come, not the world that is. He's not talking about the church age. He's talking about the world to come. And when the world to come happens, it's not the angels that are going to be in that place of authority and ruling and reigning. Who's it going to be? It's man who's been created a little lower than the angels. And this is true not only here, but in other places. Revelation 1, 4 through 6, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, we've been made as kings and priests. There's an authority, there's a, 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 a ruling that's going to be granted to us. Again, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 4. I encourage you to read it on your own. But here you say, we read that um, after Satan is released at the end of the thousand years, and I saw thrones and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. So there is a judgment that's going to be committed to man. And this is what the fuller understanding of Psalm chapter 8 was all about. So there is a coming glorious and wonderful reign of peace and prosperity upon this earth. And it is possible because of the incarnation of Jesus. We'll develop that more in just a moment. But in the kingdom to come, we'll be granted the opportunity to rule and reign with Christ. Now, I mean, that's just, if that was not in scripture, that would be crazy talk, wouldn't it? It'd be crazy talk. And how about this verse, Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes... Who is he who overcomes? Those who have faith in Jesus. Do you have faith in Jesus? Then you have overcome. I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Try and process that. Try and, and work that through your heart and your mind. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I mean, the, the, the comparison, what Jesus experienced, we get to experience. Because he came as a man and he tasted this glory and this suffering for all of us. So the goal of the author in recalling this truth was to show that although man may be inferior to angels now, this is not man's ultimate destiny. We're not going to be stuck in this place that we are right now. So the thinking that dismisses Jesus because of his humanity is wrong and short-sighted for man's ultimate destiny is to rule with Christ because of Christ. So as they were, you know, and this happens, we'll make decisions theologically or philosophically or maybe even just practically in life, and we don't understand the full ramifications of what we're saying and what we're doing. You know, it's kind of like, it's a short-sightedness. I'm going to push one domino that's in a line of a thousand, and I only think one domino is going to fall. That's not what happens. That's not what's going to happen for these Hebrew believers. If they rejected Jesus on the account of the fact that he had taken on human flesh, well, it's him taking on human flesh that makes all of salvation possible, not to mention the glory to come. So the reality of Psalm 8 cannot be realized if Jesus did not come as a man and suffer to bring grace. So we move on. Verse 6. We read, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? So now we're kind of, we're talking about man, 
but we're also talking about the God-man because the writer of Hebrews is applying it to him. So let's think first for ourselves. And uh, this is an, an often thought upon verse in my heart and my mind. In my prayers, I often find myself coming. It's like, Lord, who am I that you are mindful of me, that you take the time, that you care for me? Now, we know that the Lord had that same care for his son, that God had the same care for his son. But when David wrote this psalm, it's not hard to imagine him being out in the field, tending the sheep and looking up into the, the sky and the vastness of his creation. And to see that, this is one of the great things about the trip that we just took. We had such an opportunity just to sit and see God's creation without everything else around it. And it's just like, yeah, I'm small. I'm small. But God cares for me, and he's, he, he, he's mindful of me. He's not just mindful. He also cares for me. The Lord thinks upon you more than you even think upon yourself. Can you imagine that? Because we think about ourselves a lot. And yet the Lord is more acquainted with you than you are acquainted with yourself. He knows the difficulty that you're in and the parts you don't understand of why you're reacting the way you do and why it's making you feel the way you do. You know those mornings when you wake up or the end of the day or any time of the day and you're like, something's wrong. I can feel it. <laughs> I can tell that there's something that's kind of troubling me. I can't even remember what's troubling me. More than once I've told Rebecca, I said, yeah, I'm just kind of like a little, little anxious. I don't know what's going on. I can't remember. She goes, well, it's probably because of this. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. But you know, you can be going through things and you, you can feel it, but you don't even know why. And yet the Lord knows why. He never forgets what you're feeling or what's going through, even when your mind maybe has temporarily pushed it to the side, but yet the effects of what you're thinking and feeling are still being felt in your body. He cares. He knows when you stand up and when you sit down. Do you pay attention to that? If you got a bad back, you do. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, you, you do. But, um, but, you know, on good days, you're not thinking about, oh, that was a good stand-up. You know, oh, wow, that really sat down. And, you know, lie down, get up. He's paying that much attention. You know, who pays that kind of attention? A new mom to that new baby. They pay that. Oh, they rolled over. You know, picture, psh, look, you know, they rolled over. Look, I caught them rolling over. You know, and then they're standing at the table and they're rocking and they fall down. And yet, well, this is a big moment. And it is. It's a development, right? These are the healthy things we want to see our children go through. And we pay attention to that. Your Heavenly Father knows when you stand up and when you sit down. He's, he's mindful of you. And yet there's this vast universe that he's holding together by the word of his power. But it's no stretch of his power, is it? Because he's omnipotent. He is infinitely powerful. Is it more difficult for the Lord to hold the universe together or to help you get over that headache? You can't measure God that way, can you? Because he's infinitely powerful. Nothing drains him. Nothing comes up on the meter of that took a lot. We measure it that way, but he doesn't. He may even communicate it to us because we think of it that way, but for him infinitely powerful and yet he's mindful of you and he cares for you he is watching over you he knows your secret fears he knows your secret faults again not just thinking about you he's 
taking care of you. We are never alone. We should never say as the children of God, nobody knows, nobody cares. That is not true. That has to be an offense to the Lord. That has to be an offense to him. What do you mean? Nobody knows and nobody cares. If the whole world was to care about you, that wouldn't even begin to be the first little measurement of the amount of care I have for you. So this sovereign God, and David is amazed by this. Verse 7, you've made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the work of your hands. So you not only care for him, but man has a privileged position over God's creation. So, yes, we are lower than the angels, um, and, and, and yet this is not, again, forever. Warren Wiersbe says, man was created a little lower than the angels and therefore inferior to them, but man was given privileges far higher than angels. So it's important to know that this lower position is not a forever word. It's what we see now. As a matter of fact, the word little can refer to amount, distance, or time. And so, uh, you know, the, the aspect of time, for a while it's going to be this way. That man will have a superior role in the kingdom to that of angels is without question. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Paul's correcting a problem with the Corinthians wanting to go and sue each other. He says, you guys can't even figure out your own problems in the church. And he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So he's speaking in the future about the coming place of authority and rule. And he says, in even over angels. Angels are superior in creation in this present time. They're always in the presence of God. They can't experience death. I would argue they are no longer able to be led into sin since that initial fall and rebellion by Satan and a third of the angels. They're not limited to the restrictions of a physical body and they have superior strength. And so in these ways, we can say that we've been made little lower than the angels. But this is a temporary status, isn't it? Because there's coming a day when we will be in the presence of the Lord and all of those things will change and we will have authority over them. He says that not only are we made lower than the angels, he says, but you've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. In the beginning, in Genesis, when God created man, he gave him dominion over this world. Just a couple of verses from Genesis. Verses 1, um, 26, and I have through 20, but it's actually down to verse uh, 30. It says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. And then again in verse 28, God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And again, he goes through that same statement. So the Lord in creation gave us this, this role of, 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 of taking care of and having dominion over the works of his hands. He made it and he said, care for it. This was God's design and intention for us to live in a perfect environment, experiencing perfect harmony with one another, the animal world, 
And the plant world, you like the plant world? Poison ivy, yeah, plant world. You know, just, yeah, that there, there wouldn't be any, any problems. There were thorns and thistles weren't there. It was a perfect setting. And God said, here you go, take care of it. But of course, we know that man sinned and he rebelled. Uh, verse 8 says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? We have been given this dominion, but what we see, we don't see perfect harmony in this world that God created. We see something that is far different. We don't see man having this dominion. And really, at this point in time, as we think about applying this to Jesus, we don't see him having the full control over this world yet either, but it's coming. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. The reason we don't see this dominion is because man forfeited much of this dominion when he rebelled against God in the garden and submitted himself to the lies and the leadership of Satan. Man handed over the title deed of the earth to Satan when he sinned and rebelled. So you read in Genesis, it was given to us. But who is the one that has this authority today? Well, we've got a couple of verses for you. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. When did that begin? In the rebellion in the garden. Matthew 4, 8, and 9. Again, the devil took him up, took Jesus on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. When did he get them? In the rebellion at the garden. He had this control. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Speaking of Satan, it says, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So it is the God of this age that's ruling and reigning. So today, we don't see a world where man is in perfect fellowship with God, having perfect harmony with one another, with God, with this created world. We see the chaos and the consequences of rebellion. So yes, he was created a little lower than the angels, and he was given charge over the work of his hands, but he rebelled. And so we see chaos, and we see death, and we see greed, and we see disease, murder, wars, famine, violent nature disasters, violent attacks from the animal world against man, and, and the list goes on. Some would say, I want nothing to do with a God who would create a world like this. Well, in part, you can kind of understand that. You can kind of understand where if a person is not fully understanding who God is in his nature and what his works are, and they look at this world and they assume that God wanted a world to be full of sickness and disease and, and war and famine and, and heartache and heartbreak. You're like, why would he create it like this? He didn't. He didn't create it like this. He created it that we might have dominion over this glorious work of his hands, but we sinned and rebelled and we handled the title deed, if you will, of this earth over to Satan and said, here you go, what do you want to do with it? And he says, I want to bring death and destruction. I want to rob, kill, and destroy. So what you see in this world today is not the world that God had created, nor is it the world that he's going to recreate. 
So my question to you who has a maybe very good objection is, do you want to be part of when it is right? Because God's not happy with the way it is right now. If you don't like the way the world is, then that's fine. But you got to get behind God first because he raised his hand first and said, I am not happy with this. I will redeem this. I will fix this. So you can look at the world and say this is a terrible mess. You're absolutely right. But it's the cause of man's sin and rebellion and, and following the, the sway of the wicked one. God is going to restore this. And how did he do that? He began by sending his son, Jesus Christ. That he restore the most important thing, and that is our heart and relationship with God. And then he will restore this world to come. And we will see it as it was meant to be. To reject God because you despise the hardships of this life, the current fallen state, is to reject the only hope of seeing the world being made right. You reject God because of the way the world is. You reject God and what he's going to do to make it right, which is supposedly the very thing you're longing for. So it's not his fault the way things are. He said that if you sin and you rebel, it'll bring death. So we don't see it. We do not see the way, the way things are to be. It's coming, though. Verse 9, but Jesus, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. So he's talked about man, and now he's saying, hey, we also see that Jesus was made lower than the angels. And that seems to be the problem for these that he's writing to. For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. So why was he made lower than the angels? For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. He was made lower, that is, he took on human flesh that he might suffer. He needed to have a vehicle by which he could suffer and change what man corrupted. And the only way to do that was to give Jesus a body, well, the, the, the pre-incarnate Christ, a body like man so he could go and he could make it all right. It was man who messed it up, and it's going to be the God-man who makes it right. And so he had to come in this way. So he's made lower than the angels for the suffering of death with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. It's necessary that Jesus would come in this human way. Jesus' incarnation made him lower than the angels in that he took on the limitations of humanity for the purpose of dying for all of mankind. Now he did not you know, he did not lose his divinity. He retained that completely. But he willingly submitted to the limitations of taking on human flesh. In his incarnation and death, he's working redemption for man and trying to get things back to the place God had intentionally desired them to be. Paul writes about this in Romans. And he talks about how Jesus' coming restores what was lost by man in the garden. It's an important passage for us to know. We talked a lot about this in our doctrine series that we went through on Wednesday nights not so long ago. But let me read it to you. It's Romans 6, 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also should be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, and we believe that we should also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer has master over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so he says, conclusion, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. So Jesus experienced for us what was necessary to see this thing restored. And now in him, not only do we have our sins forgiven, but we also, the glory that was intended is also restored, but even more so. The curse of the garden was death. If you eat of this tree, you're going to die. And that's what we see in the world today. So this very thing that the Hebrews are having a problem with is the very means of their salvation, as it is for us. Yeah, but Jesus, he's a man. I mean, the angels, I mean, they're, they're in the presence of God. They're powerful. They're, they don't have to deal with these things. And Jesus came and he... You know, he was born like a man, and he was rejected, and he was put to death. But it was necessary that he would die, that we might have life. So that which was lost by man in the garden has been restored by Jesus Christ in his body in the incarnation. Um, five things quickly. We'll receive a new body which is spiritual and not part of the corrupted physical nature. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2 talks about this and how we have a new body, a new tent that we're going to be dwelling in. Um, also, the animal and the plant kingdom will be changed. Um, even as creation fell, mankind, it impacted all of creation. So Isaiah eleven six 6 says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. There's this, be this harmony that's going to be restored. Uh, Paul picks this up in a very theological way in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And isn't that the problem that these readers were having. They were looking at the present time, the persecutions, and they were thinking, oh, I don't know. But they were losing sight of the glory. He says in verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. What you see going on in this world, you can hear the world groaning for the day in which we will have our full glory restored. Because when that happens, then the earth will be restored to its perfect state. I think this is going to be one of the great moments that we're going to be able to experience. It's not talked about specifically in Scripture, but if this world is going to be restored and we are present and alive and having a glorified body, we're probably, I'm assuming we're going to watch this world be recreated after the Great Tribulation. What is that going to be like to watch this thing? But he's talking about this time when this happens. So, so Jesus dying on the cross rising from the dead, giving us salvation, when we are restored, then the, all of creation will be as well. In Isaiah 2, verse 4, it talks about how the implements of war are going to be turned into implements of agriculture. And so we also are going to see that we will no longer even be tempted with sin because we'll be in a glorified body. Hey, Jesus has come to this world to be our kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. 
How many are familiar with that phrase, kinsman? A lot of you. Okay, good. Let me take just a moment, because I think this is a, a great way for us to end this study of just thinking about this. The Old Testament provides a picture uh, for us of how Christ came to be our kinsman, our family rede redeemer. The law made special provision for near family members to buy possessions and land of a relative who had to sell them because of poverty. So you went bankrupt, you had to end up selling your property just to live. Well, somebody who was of a near relative to you could come back and at any time could buy that piece of land back from whoever purchased it, and it was a prorated amount. So if you sold it for, you know, seven years, and there was five years left, he would have to pay that five years uh, back to the, to the current landowner. He's got two years of use of it, so five more years. And they had to, it had to go back. But it couldn't just be anybody. It couldn't be your friend. It had to be a family member, a kinsman. And so this is something that would take place. And the idea was that God wanted families to keep what had been given to them as an inheritance. But there was an also another law that relates to this whole story that I'm heading towards. Um, and that is that if your brother was, unable, did not, was married and did not have a, uh, a child, then it was your responsibility to take his widow and take her to yourself, and that first child would receive the inheritance of the deceased brother. The idea is that inheritance is never lost, that it continues on. We're not real familiar with that one. That seems a little interesting to us. But there are some stories that, are, that relate to this. Um, Tamar is one of those stories. But there's one that's a little more pleasant to talk about than Tamar. And that's um, Ruth and Boaz. So Ruth was married to a Jewish man who had to sell his land and they moved to Moab. He ended up dying. And it sounds like that they got, you know, he left as a single man with his family. He ended up dying. But before he died, he had married a Moabite, a Gentile woman by the name of Ruth. Well, dad and the two sons die. So Naomi and Ruth end up, Naomi being um, the, you know, her mother-in-law, they return to Israel. And when they come back, they have no food. They have, they have no way to provide for themselves. The land has been sold. So they come back in, and it's around harvest time. And as they come in, Naomi, who's too old to go out in the field, uh, says, Ruth, listen, we have this law. And the law of the land says that as they harvest, that they're only able to go through the field once. And whatever they drop, they're not allowed to pick up, and they're not able to go in the edges of the field. So whatever is missed by the, uh, the you know, the, those that are harvesting, whatever's been dropped, you can pick that up legally, and you can receive this. And so she goes to the field to participate in gathering some grain so they'll have a way to meet. But the, the man who owns this field, is, his name is Boaz. And Boaz sees Ruth, and she was a good-looking lady. He's like, who is that? So, well, that's, that's, uh, that's Ruth. This is her husband. Remember, you know, he's a family member of yours. He ended up a family member. And so Ruth ends up coming home that day, and she has like a massive amount of grain. And Naomi's like, where were you today? Where did you get this so much grain? She says, well, this guy by the name of Boaz. Boaz. Oh, Boaz. This is important. He's family. And she realized that 
this man had taken, had taken a, um, an interest in her. And so she gives her some instruction. And through, I mean, I'm just going to compress the story. Boaz comes to the conclusion that um, because he's not married, he can take uh, Ruth as his wife. Um, but there's also this field that they had to sell, this land. And so, but he's not the one that's the closest family member. His older brother is a closer family member. So he can't just go do it because it has to be one that is a kinsman, the nearest kinsman in the family. So he goes to his brother and says, hey, this field of, you know, um, uh, Ruth's um, husband, it's available to be purchased. He goes, that's a great field. I'll think I'll get it. Well, that's great. But, you know, there's also a catch. Um, his wife is, is back, the widow. So you're going to have to take her too. He's like, I don't think my wife's going to go for that. I'll tell you what, you can have the field and the Gentile bride. And so they end up getting married. And of course, they are in the lineage of Jesus Christ, kinsman redeemer. Jesus had to come as a kinsman to redeem. He had to be one that was of, of near relationship. If God himself could not have been the redeemer, it had to be a kinsman redeemer. So it took a God-man to come and to pay for the consequences of man's sin that he might redeem him and bring him back to himself. I'm reminded of the parable of Jesus in Matthew 13, 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Because of the field? No, because of the treasure in the field. The Lord has redeemed this earth to himself, but the real treasure to him is you. It's mankind, and he has done this. If you take some time on your own, you can read Revelation chapter 5, and there you read of how Jesus takes the, a scroll and he opens it. There's nobody found in heaven or earth that's worthy to open this scroll, but he opens it, and now he's able to redeem the world back to himself. And that is because it had been forfeited. Man had sold it back in the garden, and Satan had had it. But, the, but Jesus, when he returns to this earth, he's going to take ownership of that which we forfeited as our kinsman redeemer. And this world is going to be a different place. So, yes, we've been made a little lower than the angels, but consider how God has put his attention upon us. He thinks of you. He knows. But there's this fuller picture of Jesus and how the Father cares for him. You know, we don't see the world under subjection to us now. And one day, we will see this world under subjection to Jesus. Right now, everything that's been needed to be done to purchase that house called the earth has taken place, right? Everything's he's, he's qualified, he's a kinsman, he's without sin, um, he's spotless, he died on the cross, he's submitted to the Father, um, but we're just waiting for that date on the calendar when closing happens. You bought the house, but you gotta wait for the day when escrow closes, right? And maybe not a perfect example, but Jesus has already bought the house. He's already redeemed this world and the treasure in this field. But we're waiting for closing to happen. And Jesus is going to come and he's going to close on this. And everything is going to be underneath his control. And he said, when it's under my control, it's going to be under your control too. Because you're going to sit on a throne 
with me, even as I sat on the throne with my father. So I want you to think, think about that. Ponder this. Now, this is, not, this is not, as we go through this passage, these are not easy thoughts to kind of just immediately pull out. But as you ponder them and begin to put scripture in scripture, you begin to see the glory of this. And so if you are in that place where you're looking like, man, this is just everything so earthly and you're caught up in the earthly state, then look up. Consider who you are. That God is got a glorious plan of salvation for you and that you're going to rule and you're going to reign with him. What is it that's really bothering you today? Put that on the scale. Put the irritations you have of work, of home, of children, of this or that, health, whatever, finances. All right, now put the glory of what God has intended for you on the scale. Does it even measure that for all of eternity, this is what we're going to walk in and experience. We can become so focused on this world that we forget that glory. And the Lord would have us today to remember that glory and to be a part of it and to make that our priority. So yes, Jesus took on a human body and there's all kinds of limitations that came with that. And if you compared it to angels... As the Hebrews were doing, it's like, this just doesn't seem as great. But do you understand why he had to do it? Because if he didn't come and take on human flesh and die and rise from the dead, then all of this glory could not be ours and we could not be redeemed. So let's, with a thankful heart, work through this week, pondering and considering these things. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, we thank you for your glory and honor that you've intended for your son. And we know, Lord, he sits at the right hand awaiting to take that scroll and to open it and bring this world back to yourself. Thank you that you've included in this, Lord. It really, I mean, what can we say? You, your son tasted grace and we get to taste, or tasted of this grace for us and he has made us partakers. And Lord, we know we don't deserve it. Who are we that you'd be mindful of us and that you would care for us? But Lord, we can even add, and that you would bless us with such a future glory. We thank you. Lord, if we are weighed down, if we are held down by this present world, we're like a, a little caterpillar crawling across this dusty, hot ground. May we realize the change, the metamorphosis that has happened and is happening that Lord, you're going to allow us to, to come forth in a glorious body. You're going to allow us to, to enter into the blessings that you've intended. And we want to just say thank you. I want to give you a moment just to respond to the Lord. Just respond to the Lord. If you've been so weighed down and so irritated by this fleshly world, just push it to the side because of the glory and the suffering that Jesus has gone through for you. And Lord, we pray you'd help us to make that a focus each and every day that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. In your name we pray, amen.